Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. Father, we praise you that you speak clearly. You show us where to go. You show us the way to live. You show us, most of all, Jesus. And you call us to trust him and live for him. We want to humble ourselves before you now so we would hear you speak clearly and we would respond with faith, with repentance, with joy as we go out to serve you in your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So test the spirits, John says. In this letter we've been looking at over the last couple of months, John is now well into giving us some practical application of what he's been saying about not being led astray by these false teachers who have left the church. These false teachers who seem to be promising a version of Christianity that is easier, more spiritual, more exciting, more victorious than what these Christians have heard from John and the other apostles. Don't love them, don't follow them, John says. We're going to get quite practical quite quickly with these verses. At the heart of these verses in front of us this morning is a clear and simple question. How can I discern, how can I know whether the preaching and teaching that I'm listening to is truth or error? If I'm looking for a new church, whether that's right now and I'm working out if this church is for me, or maybe in the future if I move away from London or I head off to university, or maybe when I'm at school and people are saying lots of different things and my RE teacher comes up with a thing which is a bit different from what I've heard in the Bible before or in Pathfinders or in the youth group or wherever, and I'm thinking, is that right? How do I tell? How do I discern? How do I work out? What is true and what is not? And we live in a world, don't we, which is full of opportunities to hear Christian teaching. Not just in church on a Sunday, but in books and, of course, online. And it's increasingly common for people to listen to Christian podcasts and sermons from around the world. And sometimes it's new and it's fresh and it's exciting what you hear. And again, how do I know? What is true? How do I know what could lead me astray? But there may be more than that. We might be thinking, well, hang on a minute. Does it actually matter that much anyway? I mean, heresy hunting is basically ugly, we might think. You know, it's divisive. It causes Christians to fall out with each other. It causes people to say horrible things to each other face to face and, you know, on Twitter. It's a bad witness to the world. You know, surely Christians should focus on what unites us and and agree to differ on everything else and get on with loving the world. Maybe we might think, well, it doesn't matter because we can't ever really know what's true anyway. So to fall out with one another would not just be folly, it would be horribly arrogant Because it implies we know absolute truth about God when there's no such thing. Now you might identify with one or more of those positions or you might be able to think of Christian or non-Christian friends at school or work who would say those kinds of things. Test 
the spirits, says John. He's just mentioned the Holy Spirit at the end of chapter 3, verse 24. The Holy Spirit helps us to know that we are genuine children of God by pointing us to Jesus. And so the question that then follows then is, how do we know that God the Holy Spirit is at work in us? How can we be sure it's not some other spirit at work, whether a demonic spirit or simply a spirit of delusion and confusion? Could we be sitting here at St. John's Downshire Hill in November uh, 2019 and turn out to be completely and utterly deceived and misled and plain wrong about God and Jesus and the whole Christianity thing? John gives us three questions that we can apply to any Christian teaching that we hear so that we can learn to be discerning. And along the way, we'll see why this discernment is so vital. So here's the first thing you can see on the outline. Is the message Jesus-centred and Bible-driven? Is the message Jesus-centred and Bible-driven? Verse 2, this is how you recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So here's the question, do they preach about Jesus or do they preach about something else? In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And here it's the same issue. Are we in the end preaching about ourselves or or, or about some spiritual technique? You know, do this and everything will be fine. Or are we preaching about Jesus? Are we being constantly driven to Jesus? Or are we in the end focusing on ourselves and our own efforts and what we do? It's worth noting that when John speaks about Jesus in this letter, he has in mind the whole of his life and his work. There seems to be something in particular about Jesus coming in the flesh, which gets emphasised a few times. Being made man, being truly God and truly man, one person, two natures. We saw that in the first four verses of the letter, as John emphasised seeing and hearing and touching the eternal life. But it's more than that, because throughout the letter, he can't talk about Jesus without very often pointing in particular to his death and the benefits that we receive from Jesus' death for us. So just to to look back, chapter 2, verse 2, we have one who speaks to to the Father in our defence. He is, that was verse 1, verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Chapter 3, verse 5, he appeared to take away our sins. Verse 8 of chapter 3, he came to destroy the devil's work. Chapter 3, verse 16, we saw last week, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then we'll see next time, chapter 4, verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So can you see what John wants us to see about Jesus is his whole life, Everything he did, his becoming flesh, his perfect, sinless, obedient life, all of which enabled him to die an innocent, sin-bearing death and to rise victorious over all his enemies. So that's what he has in mind then when he says, whoever acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is why he came. He came to bear sin. 
So when you listen to a sermon, to Christian teaching, is it saturated with Jesus? Is it pointing to what he's done for us, who he is and what he's done, or is it something else? It's worth noting that very often it's not just what a preacher or teacher is saying, it's what they're not saying that is important as well. Because superficially you might think um, that somebody passes the, the, the test just because they keep mentioning Jesus. So what about the Jehovah's Witnesses? You might think they pass that test, they acknowledge his existence, but they deny that Jesus is God. They talk about him. They, they even have a place for his death in their gospel message that they will try and share. But it's not a sin-bearing, once-and-for-all sacrifice for sin with the result that if you're a, a Jehovah's Witness, well, God remains impersonal and unknown because he did not become a man. And we remain unsaved. And in particular, we lack any assurance that God will accept us. We remain totally reliant on doing enough good things to ensure that we are saved on the last day. So can you see, this isn't just pernickety heresy hunting. This is sorting out fundamental issues about knowing God and being saved. And preaching that doesn't focus on Jesus, who, was, who is the eternal God, the Son, who comes into the world as a man, who can then be known well, if we don't have that, we don't know God. And preaching that doesn't preach his whole life and work and what he's done for us, well, that is not a saving sort of preaching. Do you see? These things do matter. If, if we don't know God and we're not truly saved, we might as well just all pack up and go home. But there's more. Because to put it simply, okay, well, we want to talk about Jesus, but which Jesus are we talking about? Because, you know, I remember meeting a, a Muslim man while um, in a previous church. I was ha we were handing out invitations to a church event in the local park. And I, I met this Muslim. And he realised I was a Christian because I was inviting him to church. And he said to me, ah, do you love Jesus? I said, oh, well, uh, yes, I'm a Christian. I do love Jesus. And he looked at me very seriously and he said, I love Jesus. And I wondered where this was going. And he went on and he said, I love Jesus, the prophet. Peace be upon him. But you Christians, you have got Jesus all wrong. You know, how can you believe a prophet would die on a cross. He could never have died such a shameful death. You know, you, you, you've got your Bible, but what you need is the Quran to correct all your mistakes about Jesus. Do you see, there are different versions of Jesus around. And you may also have encounters among friends or family or people at school. You know, people will talk about a kind of secular, liberal Jesus who was such a good teacher. But, you know... Please don't try and tell me he was God or that I actually need to give up my life to follow him. We don't, we don't need that. But we can, you know, we can all learn from love your neighbour as yourself. But look at verse 6 as John goes on. Remember, we have to dot around these verses a bit because John is this choreographer who dances around in themes and we're trying to draw out what he's saying, bring things together. Verse 6, he says, We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. 
Now, do you remember who the we is very often in this lesson if you've been here? When he says we, very often he means John and the apostles. So he means, he means the eyewitnesses who actually saw Jesus and were mentored by him and were commissioned by him to testify about him. Stick with this Jesus, says John. Listen to us, the apostles. Because when it comes down to it, Muhammad wasn't there. And secular 21st century Twitterati atheists, or whoever it is, they weren't there either. How can they possibly tell us the truth about Jesus? But John was there. He saw and he heard and he touched Jesus. And the Bible, and especially the Gospels, but then because Jesus in the Gospels affirms the rest of the Bible, if you like, the Bible is the record of that authentic eyewitness testimony. And there's plenty of good historical evidence that what we have in our hands is what those original eyewitness apostles wrote down. Well, so we need to listen to the apostles. What, though, does that mean? What does it mean to listen to these apostles, as he calls us to, verse 6? What does it mean to allow them to proclaim Jesus to us? Well, plenty of preachers and teachers will open the Bible, and they may well quote from the Bible, and they'll find verses here and there, slightly out of context, that support whatever it is that I've already decided, this is my message I want to say, and now I'll go and look in the Bible and find a, a verse I can pick out and support it. Have you heard of something called grave-sucking? I have to say, I hadn't heard about this till this week. Grave-sucking, or also known as grave Soaking or mantle grabbing. It's, a, it's a, a really weird thing to do where you go and you lie on the grave of a dead Christian to soak up the Holy Spirit's anointing from them. Now it's associated with the teaching of a man called Bill Johnson. And in the past it's been linked with a single verse in 2 Kings 13. Now, I know you're all experts on 2 Kings 13, you know exactly what it says. I'll tell you what it says. There is in that, there's, there's, there's an account of a man who is brought back to life, seemingly unintentionally, when his dead body touches the bones of Elisha. It's a throwaway line in 2 Kings. And to be fair, it's not entirely clear on, on first reading what is going on there, but I can tell you it isn't grave-sucking. Because the person it happens to, for a start, is dead. And it seems, you know, perhaps God is uh, affirming, honouring the memory of the dead prophet by choosing to do a miraculous resurrection at that point, as happens at various points throughout the Bible. But not meaning you can then build a whole practice of lying on anybody's grave and soaking up this sort of impersonal force of Holy Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. But you see, you can prove almost anything by taking verses out of context in the Bible. Do you know Psalm 14, verse 1? It says, do you know what it says? It says, there is no God. Do you believe Psalm 14, verse 1? It says, there is no God. But actually, no, what it says more fully is, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Do you see? The context matters. And that is why the best question about a sermon or a bit of Christian teaching isn't, is it Bible-based? You know, was the Bible open and was there a reference to a verse here or there? 
You make it say whatever you like if you do that. That's not the question. The question is, is it Bible-driven? Can you see the difference, you see? One says, let me find the odd verse to support what I already want to say. The other one says, let me start with the Bible. Let's start with the Apostles' message about Jesus. Let's let the Bible set the agenda of what we're going to hear rather than me setting the agenda. Of course we want to hear what it means for us in our lives today. It's never a lecture about something that happened thousands of years ago. But the Bible needs to set the agenda. So that's why we work through books of the Bible week by week at St. John's. There is a place for doing it differently from time to time and actually we have our series of big questions at the moment in the evening. Because sometimes it's helpful just to take a step back and see what the whole Bible says. But that is not our regular diet. It can't be our regular diet of what we hear Sunday by Sunday because it must be determined not in the end by the preacher or by the minister, but by the Bible. So if you're wondering, if you're listening to truth or error, ask yourself, is it Jesus-centred, his whole identity and life and work? And is it bible driven? Am I hearing about the whole of who Jesus is and what he's done and the whole counsel of God from the Bible over time as I listen to this teaching or preaching? The, The preacher Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said this, he said, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. Pray that that might be true of all the preaching that you hear and of the preachers who preach it. So that's the first question. There is a second question and a flip side to the first one in these verses. If not Jesus-centred and Bible-driven, are, in fact, the message and the messenger driven by worldliness in disguise? Are the message and the messenger driven by worldliness in disguise? Do you see, the false prophets and the Antichrist are said by John to have left the church and gone out into the world. And look at verse 5. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. And we've seen this before if we've been here, but one of the way false teachers give themselves away is that in the end, their message is really a love of the world in disguise. They love what the world loves. They live like the world lives. They want power and status and reputation and material prosperity, just like the rest of the non-Christian world. They just sort of cloaked it in religious terms and religious language. Now, maybe the place we see this most clearly today is in so-called health and wealth prosperity teaching. You know, you can have your best life now if only you have enough faith. God wants to bless you if you believe hard enough. Having a nice life now, actually, when you think about it, is what everyone in the world wants. Isn't it? And this is just a sort of Christianised version of that. You know, we're surrounded in this city by doing by people doing their best to improve their life. And there is a form of Christian preaching that simply slots into that and says, well, yes, actually, do you know what? You can have all that, and all you need is faith. <clears throat> now, in its worst forms, it's enslaving, because you know, those teachers like Benny Hinn is one of them, you know, they preach to people deep in debt, 
and they tell them to give a thousand dollars in faith to his ministry fund and then God will bless them and they'll start to see their life turned around. What's the result of that? Well, he gets private jets and they, in many cases, just get more debt. It is enslaving and it's utter worldliness. Can you see? Other times it's more subtle. Uh, Joyce Mayer is a very popular author. Just listen to what she wrote about healing. I have faith for I am a believer. I believe, I receive my healing and my faith makes me whole. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in me. My faith puts that power into active operation in my body. Disease has no choice. If healing does not occur, the problem is a person's lack of faith. She says, listen to that again. If healing does not occur, the problem is a person's lack of faith. Now again, somebody might say, well, there's loads in the Bible about healing. God is a God of power. Do you not believe that? The question is, what does the Bible actually promise? And with that, what does the Bible say the normal Christian life looks like? Is it, in this world, here and now, a life free of sickness and sorrow. A life where everything goes according to plan, and that would be my plan. Or is it a life of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus? See, in, in, the, in the health and, wasp, health and wealth prosperity gospel view of life, there is no place for suffering. There is no place for depression. There is no place for grief. There's no place for reality in a fallen world. There is no place for the power of Jesus who walks with us as our shepherd in our darkest valley and is able to use those hard times to help us cling on to him and be made more like him as he prepares us for eternity. There's no place for any of those things in that teaching. There is no place in the end for the cross. Now, to be fair to Joyce Mayer, she was quoted more recently saying she now thinks she was mistaken to teach that God will heal you now if only you have enough faith. But the thing is, her books are still very much out there and being read. And ultimately, the way you can tell the difference between prosperity gospel worldliness and genuine Christian preaching is this, is the question, is the focus here and now and just sort of incrementally making my life a little bit better, like everyone else in the world is trying to do, <clears throat> or is it there and then? Is it the present or is it eternity? Is it help with the daily strife of life or is it being declared right with God so that we may be confident of eternity with him? where we will find no sickness and sorrow and pain. Look carefully at the message, and then also look carefully at the messenger. Now this is something the whole of this book brings out, and John puts it in terms of the love test. The way you can spot the false teacher is by whether they love the world more than they love their brothers and sisters. Now, as we said at the start, in an age of internet preachers and sermons and podcasts and virtual church, whatever that is, this is especially important, isn't it? Because, do you know what? If we wanted, you wouldn't have to listen to me every week. 
You know, we could go online. And we could find way more gifted and impressive speakers and preachers, I promise you. And we could put them on a big screen and we could just watch them week by week. Well, why don't we do that then? It'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Well, it's ultimately because you get to watch my life and I get to watch yours. See, that is what church is about. It's about living out the gospel that we proclaim Sunday by Sunday. So that you get to see, well, is this for real or is it just talk? And then you can start to measure, is the message driven by worldliness and the messenger? Or is it driven out of love for Jesus? So pray for everyone who stands here and preaches. We're all sinners, of course we are. There will always be a bit of a mismatch. But it's the overall desire to honour Christ or is it to honour ourselves? So challenge us if you need to. And then by all means listen to to podcasts if you find it helpful and it's Jesus-centred and it's Bible-driven. But that should never be our main meal. Because a key thing that we need in order to test the spirits, in order to discern whether what we're hearing is true, is the lifestyle of the person who is speaking. Is it marked by worldliness or is it marked by living for Jesus? So, is the message Jesus-centred and Bible-driven or are the message and the messenger driven by worldliness? Then finally, do you trust that you are already on the winning side? Verse 4. So look at that. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. This verse is so encouraging. Jesus has already overcome all his enemies by dying and rising. And so now in him, you too have overcome all that stands opposed to God, John is saying. This has already happened. Because the thing, we need to know this and we need to believe this because next, in, in particular next to the kind of health and wealth prosperity gospel, next to that, genuine Christian preaching can look very unimpressive. Do you remember chapter 3 verse 2? Look back at that. What we will be has not yet been made known. Christians are people who don't have it all now because we're waiting for it to come. And in the eyes of the world, that can just look a little bit rubbish and a little bit lame. And we will be tempted to feel that. You know, you go into work or to school and you say, yeah, I, I, I spend part of my weekend just with the Bible open listening to someone explain it to me and preach it to me. What a ridiculous thing to do. And for all kinds of reasons, people will say that. And, and when, once you start to feel like that, well, what could be more impressive to the world than an offer of freedom from suffering and sin right here, right now? You start to think, yeah, I, I, I don't like feeling unimpressive. I want that. And I will be tempted to listen to the kind of teaching and preaching that starts to sound like that and starts to offer that. 
So John is saying, be reassured. Jesus has already overcome sin and he's already overcome all his enemies at the cross and one day the effects of that will be plain and obvious everywhere. But for now, its effects are slow, they're gradual, they're often hidden, they're rarely outwardly impressive. But faithful, genuine, unimpressive, unflashy preaching and teaching, that is Jesus-centred and Bible-driven, that too will prevail in the end because that preaching is about Jesus who will certainly be seen to be victorious in the end. Do you see? So the question for us is, do you trust that you're on the winning side as you stick with the gospel you've already heard, as you stick with the same message about Jesus dying for sins, as you stick with that rather than moving on to other things? Do you trust God to speak to you by his Holy Spirit as he promises to do as you stick with his word, with the apostles' testimony about Jesus? His spirit is greater than the spirit of delusion and deceit that looks so flashy in false teaching. So stick with him. As we finish then, this isn't just heresy hunting, is it? The point is that the bar for faithful and true Christian teaching and preaching is actually very low. Do you see? The bar for faithful um, Christian teaching and preaching is actually very low. You don't need to be a superstar communicator or versed in all the latest technical gimmicks or capable of preaching to crowds of thousands. You just need to have Jesus at the centre and to be driven by the Bible. And we need to be careful... Not to turn this command to be discerning about what we listen to into an overly critical, even kind of consumerist approach to the preaching and teaching that we hear. You know, sort of going around from church to church until we find the one preacher with whom we agree on every point. Or or, or, or then also falling out with one another publicly and unlovingly over obscure points of doctrine. We don't want to do that. But that is not the same as saying anything goes. Whether you're here every Sunday or you're still looking into Christian things or wondering if St. John's is for you, the Apostle John says what you need is a church where Jesus is at the centre and the Apostles' testimony about him in the Bible drives the message. Don't settle for anything less. Let's pray now. Father, we want to be people, we want to be a church that puts Jesus at the centre of our lives and looks for Jesus to be at the centre of what we say and do and what we hear. May that be the case, may it continue to be the case. May we seek to be driven by the priorities of your word. May we humble ourselves before you. May we allow you to speak into our lives. May we be ready to say when we've got things wrong. May we be ready to hear you speak to us through your word in every way. 
And would you help us as we seek to discern truth from error in the many messages we hear in this world? Help us to stay, to stick with Jesus and his gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.